You're listening to Life 101, where we live in faith every day. This is Line Upon Line, where we study God's Word line by line. And I'm your host, Pastor Adrian. how we ought to live, how we ought to speak, how, how we ought to pursue God's righteousness. Precept must be upon precept. Precept upon precept. Line upon line. Line upon line. Here a little, and there a little. So if you're serious about your walk with God and you want to understand true doctrine, it's time to get your Bible and follow along as we study God's Word. It's time to be weaned from the milk. Get your Bible. Tell a friend about this study. Tell your pastor about this study. Let's get into God's Word, line upon line. It's a new year, and we're going to start a new book. We have completed the book of Acts. Sorry, we completed the book of Luke. And uh, Luke wrote two volumes. Volume 1 was the Gospel according to Luke. And Volume 2 is the book of Acts. We could actually consider Acts as the second book of Luke. So, you know, you have... um, uh, 1 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians, we could very well say 1 Luke and 2 Luke, uh, because these are two volumes. And so it's a new year, and we're going to start a new book, the book of Acts. And it's hard to believe that we've got through the entire uh, book of Luke together, uh, just going line upon line, here a little, there a little, so that we can understand God's true precepts and God's true doctrine. So let's open with a word of prayer, and then we'll get into the book of Acts as we begin this new year. Our Heavenly Father, we pause to give you glory, to give you thanks, to give you praise, to acknowledge our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. We thank you so much for him, Father. We thank you for his faithfulness. And we pray, Lord God, that you would make us faithful witnesses as well. Father, help us to digest your word. Help us to fully understand your doctrine. And help that doctrine, Father, to drive our behavior. Please, Father, make us acceptable before you through the blood of your Son, Jesus the Christ. We praise you, we thank you, we ask this blessing now and this blessing upon our study in Jesus' most holy name. Amen. So here we are in the book of Acts, and it begins in Acts 1 and verse 1 with the former treaties. So Luke is the author here, and he says the former treaties, referring to the book of Luke, Theophilus, of all that Jesus began both to do and teach. And so let's just go back to how he began the former treatise, which is the book of Luke. When we began that study uh, months ago, in Luke 1 and verse 1, it says, For as much as many have taken in hand to set forth in those things which are most surely believed among us, so many people had, had uh, taken the task of, of writing, Uh, what happened when Christ was on earth. Then he says in verse 2, Even as they delivered them unto us, which from the beginning were eyewitnesses, so they were there, they saw it, and they delivered to us their testimony, and they were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word, it seemed good to me also, having had perfect understanding of all things from the very first So Luke is saying, you know, they all have written their testimonies of what happened. You know what? I was there from the very beginning, and I had a perfect understanding of everything that happened. So it seemed good to me also, having had perfect understanding of all things from the very first, to write unto you in order. 
most excellent Theophilus. So it's, you know, as Luke looked at the different accounts, there was something lacking that he felt Theophilus needed an orderly account, line by line, step by step, a good chronological order of things, so he would have a good comprehensive understanding. So he says, it seemed good to me also, having had perfect understanding of all things from the very beginning, to write unto you in order, most excellent Theophilus. Why? That you might know the certainty of those things wherein you have been instructed. And as I mentioned at the time when we began the book, the best explanation that I've seen of who this person Theophilus is, or was, was that he was the defense attorney for the Apostle Paul. And then the book of Acts will end with the Apostle Paul being brought to justice, and he's now, uh, he could be executed or he could be set free. And so it's important that his defense attorney has a full account of everything that happened. And what we're going to see as we get deep into the book of Acts is that the work of the Apostle Paul completely parallels the work of Jesus Christ. And this is why it's important that we see how Luke opens the book of Acts with the former treatise, Have I Made O Theophilus, of all that Jesus began both to do and to teach. These are things that he began. So it, 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 there's a sense of incompletion. And what we're going to see with the two volumes, when we put Acts with Luke, is that Jesus began to do and, ser- to do and teach certain things in the Gospel according to Luke, and he continues to do the very same things and teach the very same things in the book of Acts. That, you know, it's called the Acts of the Holy Spirit. That's actually a poor title. Yeah, a better title would be the Acts of Jesus Christ that he did certain acts and he taught certain things, and he continued to do that through the Holy Spirit, because when he sent the Holy Spirit down on Pentecost, as he promised he would, that that then empowered his people, his apostles, to continue doing the work that he did. And they did it miraculously. So these are the miraculous acts of Jesus Christ through his apostles via the Holy Spirit that he continued to do, that they... The, the, the church is the body of Christ, and the head is now in heaven, and he continues to do the same work through his body. So, so Luke opens that, you know, the former treaties I made of all that Jesus began both to do and teach until the day in which he was taken up. So that day he was taken up, and then he sent his Holy Spirit so that he could continue the same teachings, so that he could continue the same works through his body. So he began to both do and teach these things until the day in which he was taken up. After that, he, through the Holy Spirit, had given commandments unto the apostles whom he had chosen. So he gave them specific uh, commandments and, and, and instructions. And if we go back to Luke, uh, Luke 24, and how the book end, or ended, uh, as we look at how it ends and then we begin Acts, in Luke 24, verse 46, It says, And he said unto them, Thus it is written, And thus it behooved Christ to suffer, and to rise from the dead the third day, and that repentance and remission of sins should be preached in his name among all nations, beginning at Jerusalem. He's saying you have to begin at Jerusalem, and from Jerusalem take this this teaching throughout all Israel, Samaria, all Judea, Samaria, and out to the ends of the world. So this is now what needs to be preached in his name among all nations. And you are witnesses of these things. And behold, I send you the promise of my Father upon you. I send the promise of my Father upon you, but wait you in the city of Jerusalem. So this is what we find them doing when the book of Acts begins. They're obeying this command from the Lord to wait in the city of Jerusalem, until you are endued with power from on high. So Christ is making it very clear to them that this preaching that they must do in his name among all nations requires power. And so they mustn't set out to do this until they receive this power, and therefore they must stay together in Jerusalem until they receive this power. He says, And behold, I send the promise of my Father upon you, but wait in the city of Jerusalem, until you are endued with power from on high. 
And in Luke uh, chapter 9, now I just wanted to show this contrast. Here in verse 47 of chapter 24, he's telling them that repentance and remission of sins should be preached in his name among all nations. But that wasn't always the case. When he was with them in Luke 9 and verse 20, when he posed this question to them, he said unto them, But whom do you say that I am? And Peter answering said, You're the Messiah of God. This is exactly right. This is so Peter was clear about who he was. You are the Messiah, the Christ of God. And in verse 21 it says, And he straightly charged them and commanded them to tell no man that thing. So, so they now heard, they understood he, who he was. And he immediately commanded them, button it up. Make sure you don't tell anybody who I am. And yet now we see him later saying, you now have to take this knowledge of who I am throughout all Jerusalem, uh, as hostile as Jerusalem was to him and to all the prophets that have ever been there. Uh, take it throughout all Jerusalem and throughout all to all nations. But here they were not to say anything. And in Mark 9 and verse 8, um, when this is the um, glorification, the transfiguration of Christ, when they saw this transfiguration in Mark 9 and verse 8, and suddenly when they had looked around about, they saw no man anymore, save Jesus only with themselves. And as they came down from the mountain, he charged them, he commanded them that they should tell no man what things they had seen until the Son of Man was risen from the dead. So while Christ was on earth, a lot of people say, show me in the scriptures where Christ said that he was God. Uh, actually, I'll show you the opposite. I'll show you in the scripture where he commanded his disciples not to tell anybody who he was. He even commanded the devils not to disclose who he was until he was risen from the dead, that this mission had to be accomplished and he had to come to earth and he had to be crucified. And if it was uh, revealed who he was, then the mission may have been unsuccessful. So now he is taken up. So he made it very clear that you know he commanded them not to tell anybody this thing until he was risen from the dead. So now he's risen from the dead. We come to Acts, continuing in verse 2, says, until the day in which he was taken up, after that he through the Holy Spirit had given commandments to the apostles whom he had chosen, to whom also he showed himself alive after his passion, so after his suffering, by many infallible proofs. So there is no question that Jesus Christ was crucified. But not just that he was crucified, that he was resurrected, that he came back to life. And, and he showed these people infallible proofs. It was, there was no doubt about it, that this man that was dead is before us again, and he's alive. And, and it's not just one or two proofs, many infallible proofs. He says here, to whom he showed himself alive after his passion by many infallible proofs, being seen of them 40 days. So for 40 days, they saw him every day. No doubt about it. And speaking, and so for these 40 days while he was with them after his death, what was he talking about? Luke tells us that he was speaking of the things pertaining to the kingdom of God. This is what it was all about, the kingdom of God. And so, so when he began his ministry, he began his ministry preaching the kingdom of God. And when he was crucified, was in the grave for three days and three nights, and then he was resurrected, when he came back to life, he taught again, things pertaining to the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God is real, my friends. Don't let anybody uh, come and tell you, oh, the kingdom of God is something in our hearts. The kingdom is here now because it's in our hearts, and, and God rules over his people, so it's here. This is, this is not true. The kingdom of God is a literal kingdom that is coming to earth. And if you read the Bible properly, line by line, it becomes crystal clear that's what the kingdom of God is. He says, speaking of things pertaining to the kingdom of God, and we, Christians, with the Holy Spirit, are ambassadors of this kingdom. 
So we live in these foreign lands. We are, we are really pilgrims in these foreign lands. But we represent the kingdom of God. Because it is coming. And we are representatives. We are ambassadors of that kingdom. So he spoke to them for 40 days, speaking of things. He's training them. This is, the, this is sort of advanced. So he's been, he was, they were his disciples. He taught them while he was alive. Now, this is the advanced training. This is the PhD training. Because now they're off. They're, they're going to be on, on their own. He's going to leave them. And he'll comfort them with the Holy Spirit. But they now have to take the lead. And they have to continue doing the works and teaching the, the doctrine that he taught and the, the works that he did when he was on earth. So now they're getting the intense PhD course in the kingdom of God. So for 40 days he spoke to them of things pertaining to the kingdom of God. Now, let's, uh, let's go back to John to see uh, these infallible proofs. That, that it's not just one or two. There's many infallible proofs that this 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 man who they crucified came back to life and was up on his feet again after death. In John 20 and verse 20, we read, And when he had so said, he showed unto them his hands and his side. So this is the Christ resurrected. He was in the grave three days, three nights, and now he's resurrected. And he showed unto them his hands and his side. Then were the disciples glad when they saw the Lord. So they were so really filled with sadness, sorrow, depression at his death. But now they're filled with joy. And they were glad when they saw the Lord. Then said Jesus to them again, Peace be unto you, as my Father has sent me, even so I send you. So this is really... He was an apostle of God, and now he's sending them, so they will become his apostles. But Thomas, one of the twelve, called Didymus, was not with them when Jesus came. So, so he was absent at the time when Jesus was with them. The other disciples, therefore, said unto him, We have seen the Lord. We have seen the Lord. So this is, this is they're telling you he's alive. But he said unto them, Except I shall see in his hands the print of the nails, and put my finger into the print of the nails, and thrust my hand into his side, I will not believe. You know, there's always someone in, in the group that is a healthy skeptic, that has a good critical mind, that when everybody's sort of swept up with emotion, there's somebody there to say, well, you know what, there's certain criteria that we need to make sure are satisfied before we go off concluding that this or that is true. And so Thomas here is a healthy skeptic. You're telling me that this man, the Romans crucified, you're telling me he's alive? I'll tell you what, you bring him to me, and I, I need to see evidence, hard evidence, that it is in fact him, and, and it's not a, a fraud, or a deceiver, or you're not just hallucinating. So this is what I, this is the proof that I require. I, I need to see the print of the nails, and I need to put my finger into the print of the nails, and I need to thrust my hand into his side. Otherwise, I'm not believing this. And then if we drop down to verse 26, and after eight days again, his disciples were with him, and Thomas with them. Then came Jesus, and notice this little phrase that John writes. Then came Jesus, the doors being shut. So, so it was not necessary to open the door to allow Jesus in. He could just appear and then disappear. And this is, this is what we would read in 1 Corinthians 15. What, with what body are the dead raised? And we see they are, they are raised with a body, uh, human beings. We will always be embodied. There's no such thing as life without a body. So there's no dying and just going to heaven without a body. Uh, we are always embodied. Life requires a body. But 1 Corinthians 15 shares with us the nature of that new body, the, the, the spirit nature of that new body. And, and here we see with Christ, with, with this new body, he has the ability to appear and disappear. So the doors were shut and he appeared. And he stood in the middle of them. And he said, peace be unto you. Then said he to Thomas, Reach here your finger, and behold my hands, and reach here your hand, this is the infallible proof, and thrust it into my side, 
and be not faithless, but believe it. And Thomas answered and said unto him, My Lord and my God. Thomas understood very clearly, Jesus Christ is Lord and God. My Lord and my God. And so that was a very clear, infallible proof that even Thomas, the healthy skeptic, his doubts were just completely eradicated. And he came to understand, this is my Lord, this is my God. In 1 Corinthians 15, the first part of the chapter, before it gets into the nature of the resurrection, it first deals with Christ's resurrection. And in 1 Corinthians 15, in verse 4, it says that he was buried, that his Christ was buried, and that he rose again the third day. And very important, this this whole thing that Christ was in the grave three days and three nights. And all of this nonsense that we have accepted, uh, because it's kind of drilled into us from childhood and we don't question it, that Christ died on Good Friday and that he rose on Easter Sunday. And so he was in the grave for, what, two nights and one day? And, and that's the, the only proof we have that this is the Messiah, is that the sign of the prophet Jonah. That as Jonah was in the belly of the whale for three days and three nights, even so will the Son of Man be in the, the earth, the belly of the earth, for three days and three nights. It's precise. And so we, we've been sold a bill of goods. We've been deceived. And, and Easter and, and uh, Good Friday and Easter Sunday, this is all pagan worship. That because of the effort of Constantine has been... Has been uh, uh, wrapped up with Christian language. We've taken biblical language and we've, we've uh, gift-wrapped pagan, pagan uh, rituals. And so we have to come back to the true word of God. He was in the grave three days. He rose again. Notice what, what uh, Paul writes. That he rose again, in 1 Corinthians 15 and verse 4, that he rose again the third day according to the scriptures. The, the scriptures predicted that this is what would happen. And this is exactly what happened that he rose again the third day according to the scriptures. And if you have any uh, question about Christ being in the grave for three days and three nights, and you don't understand what Easter Easter bunnies and uh, all of this nonsense has to do with true Christianity, just write to us, info at cgi.org, info at cgi.org, and request material on the pagan holidays. So it says he, he rose again the third day according to the scriptures, and that he was seen of Cephas, here are the infallible proofs. He rose the third day according to the scriptures, and that he was seen of Cephas, that is Peter, then of the twelve. After that, he was seen of above 500 brethren at once. There was like some large congregation there, and he appeared to all of them at once. All 500. Of whom, Paul writes, of whom the greater part remain unto this present. So if anybody doubted what Paul was saying, there were over 500 brethren that saw the Lord. And they were still most of them were still alive. He says, the greater part remain unto this present, but some have fallen asleep. So some of them have died, have died, but the majority of them, let's say of some 450, let's say, were still alive. So if you had any doubt, there's a number of people you could go to and say, did you really see the Lord? How do you know it was him? What happened? And then you could go and talk to another person and another person. And then in verse 7 it says, After that, he was seen of James. Then of all the apostles. So all the apostles saw him. And then Paul writes in verse 8, 1 Corinthians 15, And last of all, he was seen of me also, as of one born out of due time. Let's go back to Acts. So many, many infallible proofs. And it's just... The, 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 the life of Christ, the crucifixion of Christ, his resurrection, infallible proofs. Acts 1 and verse 4. And being assembled together with them, commanded them that they should not depart from Jerusalem, but wait for the promise of the Father, which, says he, you have heard of me. So that's exactly what they were doing then. They were staying in Jerusalem, obeying this command to wait for the promise of the Father. Verse 5, for John truly baptized with water, but you shall be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So the Holy Spirit is promised to them, it's coming. 
They're going to be immersed in it. Verse 6. When they therefore were come together, they asked of him, saying, Lord, what's their question? So he has been teaching them this for, for three and a half years. He was on earth gathering these disciples, instructing them, teaching them things pertaining to the kingdom of God. Then for 40 days after his death, he was still instructing them. They were getting the intensive. They were getting the PhD intensive. And he was really training them in what? Luke writes, things pertaining to the kingdom of God. So after all of this instruction, Luke writes in verse 6, When they therefore were come together, they asked of him, saying, Lord, will you at this time restore again the kingdom to Israel? This was their question. Okay, so you mean on in a few days, we're going to be immersed in the Holy Spirit. Is this the same time that you're going to restore the kingdom to Israel? So something is terribly wrong here if God has replaced Israel. If Israel is no longer important to God, if the church replaces Israel, then this is the time for Christ to say, what are you talking about? Haven't I told you that now that I've died and I've resurrected, that that my blood covers all nations and I'm done with Israel, and now the church is Israel? This is the time for him to say all of that. But he doesn't. He doesn't say stupid question. So they ask, is this the time you'll restore again the kingdom of Israel? So all these things that he's been teaching pertaining to the kingdom of God also are equivalent to the kingdom being restored to Israel. Because this is the purpose of God, to restore the kingdom to Israel. And in Isaiah verse chapter 48 and verse 9, Again, we have to go here a little, there a little, and put these things, put the clues together. But in Isaiah chapter 48 and verse 9, God says, For my name's sake, so he has named these people Israel, Israel, they carry God's name in their name. They're associated with him. He says repeatedly in Isaiah, he's the Holy One of Israel. And here in Isaiah 48 and verse 9, he says, For my name's sake will I defer my anger. So he is furious with his people. They are unfaithful. He says they are treacherous. But for his namesake, he will defer his anger. And for his praise, he will refrain for Israel, that he cuts them not off, that I cut you not off. So Israel deserves to be cut off. Israel deserves to be destroyed. But God says, because of my namesake and because of my praise, I will not do this. Because he has promised to be the God of Israel forever. So he says in verse 10, Behold, I have refined you, but not with silver. I have chosen you, that is Israel, in the furnace of affliction. And when I say Israel, I really have to take the time to make sure we're clear that I don't mean the country that uh, the Zionists pushed and and, uh, Britain and America and France all colluded together to create this country that we call Israel today, that that's not the Israel of the Bible. That country that we call Israel today, we'd be better off calling it Judah. That's one of the 12 tribes of Israel, the Jews. But Israel was a man. His name was Jacob. And when he prevailed with God, God changed his name from Jacob to Israel. And the covenant that God promised with Abraham, which passed down to Isaac, which then passed down to Jacob. So God then covenanted with Jacob, who he renamed Israel, and this man Jacob, or Israel, had 12 sons. And these 12 sons became 12 tribes. And these people, the descendants of these 12 sons of Jacob, this is who God defines as Israel. And although we may have lost track of who the tribes are because the the nation was split. We see in in the time of uh, Solomon's son that the nation split in two. So, this 
the, the northern tribes were taken, uh, they were destroyed basically by Assyria. We read about this in the book of Isaiah and in other books, but they were destroyed by the, by the kingdom of Assyria. The southern tribes, that is um, Judah and Benjamin, they were taken captive by the Babylonians, but they were not destroyed. And although the Israelites were scattered and God divorced them, he did not divorce the southern tribes of Judah. And that's why today we still know who the Jews are. But many people have no idea who these other Israelite nations are. But it's the whole body of the sons of Jacob that are referred to as Israel in the Bible. And he says in verse 10 here of Isaiah 48, Behold, I have refined you. So instead of cutting these people off, he says, I've refined you, but not with silver. I've chosen you in the furnace of affliction. So they have to go through this furnace of affliction, but God is not going to dismiss them. He's committed to them. He says, verse 11, for my own sake, even for my own sake will I do it. So he's not doing it for them. He's doing it because of his honor, of, of the promise that he made to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Israel. For my own sake, even for my own sake will I do it. For how should my name be polluted? He will not allow the name of Israel to be polluted. And I will not give my glory unto another. So when we say that God is done with Israel, and, and now the Gentiles replace, that the Gentile church replaces Israel, we're saying that God has given his glory to another. And God says very clearly, his name should not be polluted, and he will not give his glory to another. Immediately after saying, I will not give my glory to another, <clears throat> excuse me, in verse 12 he says, Hearken unto me, O Jacob and Israel. Hearken unto me, O Jacob and Israel, my called. I am he, I am the first, I am also the last. And we see this language repeatedly in the book of Revelation, that it's the same God. He says, I am Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end, the first and the last. And he says that because he is the God that set this plan in motion from the beginning. And he is the God that will bring it to conclusion. And nobody can change it. Back to Acts chapter 1 verse 7. And he said unto them, It is not for you. So, so they asked him, Is this the time that you're going to restore the kingdom to Israel? And what we should see immediately in verse 7 when Christ answers is, He should say, What are you talking about? That, that whole thing with Israel, it's over. He doesn't say that. They ask him, oh, we're going to receive this power. Is this the time that you're going to restore the kingdom to Israel? And he said unto them, it's not for you to know. It's not for you to know the times or the seasons. So there are times and there are seasons. And one of the times and one of the seasons we should be looking for is the kingdom being restored to Israel. In fact, when we began the book of Luke in chapter 1, we saw where the angel said he will be called Jesus, and he will reign, he will rule over the house of Jacob forever. So therefore, there must be a Jacob forever. So here now he says it's not for you to know the times or the seasons. So there must be a season coming after the season we're in now. He says there's the times of the Gentiles, and there's a there's a there's a the time of Satan doing his work on the earth, but then a time is coming when Christ will usher in the kingdom of God. And there's a season when Israel will be exalted according to the original plan of God in Exodus. Chapter 19. Look, read from verses 4 to 7, Exodus 19. That's the original plan of God. And that's why when we read the book of Revelation, so when they came together, they asked him and saying, Lord, will you at this time restore again the kingdom to Israel? And instead of saying, what are you talking about? He acknowledged the question. The validity of the question. So clearly the plan is to restore the kingdom to Israel. And we know that that's the plan because of how he answered. In verse 7, he said, he said unto them, 
It is not for you to know the times or the seasons which the Father has put in his own power. So according to the Father's power, there is a time coming, there is a season coming, when the kingdom will be restored to Israel. That is a fact. And so if we are being taught a version of Christianity that does not speak about the kingdom of God in the context of the kingdom being restored to Israel, it's not the teaching of Jesus Christ. We have to have the true teachings of Christ. And Christ's purpose was to redeem Israel. The people of Israel, not, not the country we call Israel today, but the people of Israel. And he says, instead, in verse 8, you shall receive power. So, so you don't, you're not going to know when God is going to do this. Instead, you're going to receive power after the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you shall be witnesses unto me, both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and in Samaria, and unto the uttermost parts of the earth, you will be my witnesses. And then that word in, in the Greek is martyrs, which means martyrs. And, and all of them were martyred, except for John, who in a sense was martyred because he was exiled and had his life basically taken from him in exile, but he wasn't, uh, he wasn't actually martyred to death. But they were all true witnesses. In fact, John opens the uh, book of Revelation saying that he like Christ, was a faithful witness, that he was faithful to the testimony of Jesus Christ. But they are to be, in other words, this, this message that they bring is not going to be welcomed. It's not going to be welcomed in Jerusalem. It's not going to be welcomed in Judea. It's not going to be welcomed in Samaria. It's not going to be welcomed to the uttermost parts of the earth. But they will proclaim it anyway. And that, so that's, that's the exchange there. Very interesting that the kingdom is going to be restored to Israel. It's not for them to know when. Instead, they are to be his witnesses. And when he had spoken these things, while they beheld, he was taken up. And a cloud received him out of their sight. And while they looked steadfastly toward heaven as he went up, behold, two men stood by them in white apparel. Which also says, so these are two angels, You men of Galilee, why stand you gazing up into heaven? This same Jesus, which is taken up from you into heaven, so he was with them for 40 days after his resurrection, and now he's taken up from, from them in heaven. This same Jesus, which is taken up from you into heaven, shall so come in like manner as you have seen him go into heaven. So the same way they see him go, is the same way he's going to return. And how did they see him go? Well, it says in verse 9 that he was taken up and a cloud received him out of their sight. So this man is here on earth with us and we're talking to him. And then he just begins to ascend. And as he's going up into the sky, he, is, he disappears into a cloud. A cloud received him out of our sight. So we're watching him, we're watching him, we're watching him, and he disappears into the cloud same man that was on earth. And so the angel says, he's going to come in like manner as you have seen him go into heaven. John writes, when he's given the apocalypsis, the revelation, John writes in Revelation 1-7, behold, he comes with clouds. So exactly what the scripture says. The same way he went, and we, we, they were watching him, they were watching him, and he disappeared into a cloud is the same way he's going to appear. He's just going to come out of the clouds, and then he's going to come to earth. John writes, Behold, he comes with clouds, and every eye shall see him. Every eye shall see him. And, and it's important that this gospel be preached in all the world as a witness. And every eye shall see him, and they also which pierced him, that is the Jews, and we know from Zechariah 12, that they will finally acknowledge him, that they will need him, because we see from Matthew 24, and Luke 12, that armies are going to surround Jerusalem. And Jerusalem is going to, Judea is going to come under severe persecution. And Zechariah 12 shows us that God is coming to save his people. And so here he says, All kindreds of the earth 
shall wail because of him. It's not good news for the earth. Christ's return is not good news for everybody. It's good news for his people. It's good news for those who repent and are looking for his appearing. It's bad news for everybody else. Continuing that's one. And that's what John says in, in uh, verse 7 when he says, And all kindreds of the earth shall wail because of him. And then John writes, Even so, amen. It's almost like, oh well. The wicked will continue to be. The wicked will wax worse and worse. And they will not understand. And they will do wicked things. And Christ is coming to punish that wickedness. And John says, even so, amen. Verse 12 of Acts 1. Then returned they unto Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet. So then returned they unto Jerusalem, so they're going back to Jerusalem, from the mount called Olivet, which is from Jerusalem, a Sabbath day's journey. So a Sabbath day's journey is less than a mile. So they were the mount Olivet is less than a mile away. So they're coming from the mount Olivet, going back to, and that's another thing, that clearly Christ left from the mount called Olivet. So when he returns, he's returning to the mount called Olivet. And that mountain is going to split in two. And that's what the prophecy shows us. So they return from Mount Olivet, which is about a Sabbath day's journey from Jerusalem. And when they were come in, they went up into an upper room, where abode both Peter and James and John and Andrew, Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew and Matthew, James the son of Alphaeus, Simon Zelotus, and Judas, the brother of James. So, so they, they, uh, all these apostles are there, 11 of them. They all continued with one accord in prayer and supplication with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and with his brothers. And in those days, we want to listen to this now, what Luke is writing. And in those days, Peter stood up in the midst of the disciples and said, and we know Peter is a man of action. You know, when, when um, the soldier cut, uh, when apprehended Christ, Peter drew his sword and cut off the, the ear. Uh, when when uh, Christ was washing the disciples' feet, Peter said, no, no, you'll never wash my feet. And he said, well, if I don't wash your feet, you, you, you will not have anything to do with me. Oh, then wash my whole body. And, uh, you know, when when the time was coming to Christ's crucifixion. Christ, Peter was the one who said, I, I'll never depart from you. I'll, I'll be with you to the end. And so Peter was this, um, I don't want to say impulsive, but certainly a man of action and, and very decisive. So now the, all the disciples, the apostles are together with the disciples. And in those days, Peter is the one that stands up. Peter stood up in the midst of the disciples and said, the number of the names together were about 120. So he's speaking to about 120 people, Luke writes. So he stands up in the middle of these 120 and he says, Men and brethren, this scripture must needs have been fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit, by the mouth of David, spoke before concerning Judas. So there's a prophecy that David spoke that Peter is saying, You know what, everybody? This had to be fulfilled, which was spoken by the mouth of David concerning Judas, which was guide to them that took Jesus. So Judas is the betrayer. For he was numbered with us and had obtained part of this ministry. So this is something that Peter's reflecting on and saying, you know, what Judas did is demonic. It's out of this world. But as he's reflecting on it, he's saying it was necessary. And in fact, it was prophesied. David prophesied it. And so he said, he was numbered with us and had obtained part of this ministry. Now this man purchased a field with the reward of iniquity. And falling headlong, he burst asunder in the middle. And all his bowels gushed out. So a horrendous end of Judas took the silver that he, he acquired, went and bought a field with it, and then he went and hung himself. And he fell headlong, and his bowels gushed out, and what a horrible end. And it was known unto all the dwellers at Jerusalem. So 
Everybody knew about this. Insomuch, as that field is called in their proper tongue, Asaldama, that is to say, the field of blood. So that field that Judas bought when he killed himself was now known as the field of blood. And then he goes on to explain what he means that David prophesied this. He says in verse 20, For it is written in the book of Psalms, Let his habitation be desolate, and let no man dwell therein, and his bishopric let another take. So clearly Peter had come to understand how to read the Psalms, how to read the scriptures. Christ, in fact, after his resurrection, beginning at Moses, that is the Torah, went through and showed them all the places where it is spoken of him in the scriptures. And so with that now increased understanding from Christ, uh, he was able to go into Psalms and say, this, this scripture here pertains to Judas. Let his habitation be desolate, and let no man dwell therein. Let his bishopric, that is his office, let another, and his bishopric, let another take. So he's quoting Psalm 109. And we'll just take it from verse 7. Psalm 109, verse 7 says, When he shall be judged, let him be condemned, and let his prayer become sin. Let his days be few, and let another take his office. Let his children be fatherless, and his wife a widow. And so, Peter is zeroing in on this prophecy from David, and particularly the part that says, let another take his office. So he's, he's, he's standing up in the middle, talking to 120 disciples. And in verse 21, Luke writes, that he says, Therefore, of these men which have accompanied with us all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning from the baptism of John unto that same day that he was taken up from us, must one be ordained to be a witness with us of his resurrection. So this is the conclusion that Peter came to. There were 12 of us, 12 apostles, and one of us betrayed us, betrayed Christ and betrayed the rest of us. But this had to be. And in fact, there's a prophecy that says when this comes to pass, let his office be given to another. So therefore, the conclusion Peter comes to is we need to give his office to another person. So we need to look among the men that have seen this whole thing from the beginning. Beginning from John's baptism and John's preaching and, and how John declared Christ was coming and then Christ came and, and we, we, he called us his disciples and we were with him from the beginning and, and we saw all of that up to his, his death and resurrection. So somebody who saw all of this needs to be a witness with us of his resurrection. And so, but, but in verse 21 he says, of these men. So, so Peter says, we've got to select from these men. And there are so many people today that uh, claim to be apostles. You'll actually see them called the apostle this or the apostle that, or they'll come on very clearly and say, I am an apostle. This is all nonsense. An apostle is one sent by Christ. And, and he had to be a witness so that he can, he can declare Christ as a true witness. But an apostle is one sent by Christ. And I, I'm going to put forward here that this is a mistake, that Peter is being too hasty. This man of action is acting too quickly. And so he's deciding that of this pool of men, they have to select one person to replace Judas's office. And I'm going to show you why I think he's, he's hasty here in a moment. But I think it's going to become very clear from the way he writes. But here he's saying, of these men which have accompanied us all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning from the baptism of John unto that same day that he was taken up from us, must one be ordained to be a witness with us of his resurrection. And they appointed two. Joseph called Barsabbas, who was surnamed Justice, and Matthias. And they prayed. And said, You, Lord, which know the hearts of all men, show which of these two you have chosen, that he may take part of this ministry and apostleship, from which Judas by transgression fell, that he might go into his own place. And they gave forth their lot, and the lot 
fell upon Matthias, and he was numbered with the eleven apostles. And this is how the book, the chapter one ends. But I just want to talk a little bit about this, because I think this was a, a, a great mistake that Peter made, and I'll explain why. So first of all, an apostle is one that Jesus sends. And so this is something that they just decided amongst the men, that the office had to be replaced, but amongst the men that were there from the beginning, they had to choose. So they chose two. And then they cast lots. They, they appointed two. So Luke is very specific in his language. In verse 23 it says, and they appointed two. It doesn't say that Christ appointed two. That they, they chose these two. They appointed them. An apostle is one that Christ sends. So here they appointed two. And then they, they take these two and they cast lots. I would say a better thing for Peter to have done would have been to cast lots in the first place to say, is this something that we should do or do we leave this in your hands? And then cast the lot and see if God even wants them to participate in this very, uh, very important selection. But they just go ahead and choose two of their own accord. And then they cast the lots. And then the lot fell on Matthias. And I'm sure that, um, so, so it was, they numbered two. And I'm just, uh, the name Justice was, so there was uh, Joseph and then there was um, uh, Matthias. So we have um, Joseph and, or Barsabbas, and then Matthias. And I'm sure when the lot fell on Matthias, Barsabbas would have been relieved. Too, too many people are very ambitious. And they want to be apostles, and they call themselves prophets, or they call themselves prophetesses, and they don't understand what they're doing. That this is something that must be ordained by God himself. And it's no picnic. It's no picnic. And so they chose Matthias. And I'm sure, I'm sure these are two very noble men. These are two people that they're looking at and they're saying, these are two very noble men. We think these, 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 one of these two would be the right man for the job. And then they cast the lots, and the lot fell upon Matthias. It's got to fall on somebody, so there's two of them. It's going to fall on one of them. And then Luke writes, and he was numbered with the eleven apostles. Luke never says that he became an apostle. He just says he was numbered with the eleven apostles. And that's the last thing that Luke says about Matthias. And I'm sure Matthias, is, of course, he's a noble man. He's a very true Christian. But he was not an apostle. And so they made this decision to number him among the apostles. And then Luke continues writing about the acts of the apostles. And he never, ever, ever mentions Matthias. Matthias has no works. Because this was a mistake, I believe. And, and why I say this is if we go to the end of the story, let's go to the book of Revelation. And in Revelation, at the end of the book of Revelation, in chapter 21, John writes that the angel carried him away, and he carried me away in the spirit to a great and high mountain, and showed me that great city, the holy Jerusalem, descending out of heaven from God. So this is, this is the end of all things now, and the holy Jerusalem is coming down from heaven. Having the glory of God, and her light was like unto a stone most precious, even like a jasper, jasper stone, clear as crystal. And had a wall, great and high, and had twelve gates, and at the gates twelve angels, and names written thereon, which are the names of the twelve tribes of the children of Israel. So here we see very clearly, this is the end. This is the end of the book. The end of the book of Revelation, and it's the end of the Bible. That at the end of all things, God the Father himself is going to come down to earth from heaven to join Jesus Christ. But prior to that, he's going to send the new Jerusalem to earth. And this new Jerusalem has 12 gates. And every one of those gates has a name. And those names are the names of the 12 tribes of the children of Israel. In other words, the kingdom is going to be restored to Israel. And you cannot get into the New Jerusalem to see God, the Father, or Jesus Christ, unless you come in through one of these gates. And you have to acknowledge that God is the God of Israel. 
There's no two ways around this. But it doesn't stop there. He says in verse 13, on the east three gates, on the north three gates, on the south three gates, and on the west three gates. So uh, four, four sides with three gates each side, and each one has a name of one of the tribes of Israel. So you've got to come in through one of the tribes of Israel so that the kingdom will be restored to Israel. And in verse 14, and the wall of that city had 12 foundations. So it doesn't just have 12 gates, it also has 12 foundations. And in them, the names of the 12 apostles of the Lamb. So not only does the gate, or the, the new city have 12 gates, it also has 12 foundations. The gates are named after the tribes of Israel, the foundations are named after the apostles. So there can only be 12 apostles. Judas betrayed, and he was rejected. That left 11. So now we need to add one more apostle to make up the 12. The question is, is Matthias that 12th apostle? Or, if we read the book of Luke carefully, where he shows us that these men chose of their own human wisdom, Matthias, but then Matthias is never mentioned again by Luke. Instead, Luke shows the works of the apostles uh, really up until, I believe it's going to be chapter 12, and then Paul is recruited by Christ. I think he's recruited from chapter 9, I have to refresh my memory. He's, Paul is recruited from Christ by Christ, and the rest of the book is all about the works of the Holy Spirit, through the Apostle Paul. And repeatedly, Paul calls himself an Apostle. Matthias never calls himself an Apostle. And there can only be 12 Apostles. In 1 Corinthians 1, verse 1, he writes to the Corinthians, Paul, called to be an Apostle of Jesus Christ through the will of God. So it was God's will that Paul become an Apostle, one sent by Jesus Christ. When the Corinthian church was giving Paul such a hard time and they weren't, they were not being loyal to him. In, in 1 Corinthians 9 verse 1, he writes, Aren't I an apostle? Aren't I free? Haven't I seen Jesus Christ our Lord? Aren't you my work in the Lord? So this is one of the requirements, this is the key requirement of an apostle, is you have to have seen Jesus Christ. And you, you, you have to be sent by Jesus Christ. And when we get further in the book of Acts, we'll see that Jesus Christ called, recruited, and then sent the Apostle Paul directly, and trained him directly for some three years in Arabia. In verse 2 he says, If I'm not an apostle unto others, doubtless I'm an apostle unto you. For the seal of my apostleship are you in the Lord. So, so this his work in Corinth was the seal of his apostleship. And in verse 5, he says, Have we not power to lead about a sister or wife as well as other apostles? So he puts himself right on equal footing with the other apostles. And then we read earlier in chapter 15, 1 Corinthians 15 and verse 9, he says, For I am the least of the apostles. So there's 12 apostles, and Paul says, You know what? I'm the least of the apostles. I'm the least of the apostles, and I'm not meet. I'm not, it's not appropriate to even be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. So that, that, that uh, sort of racked his, his, his conscience, and he felt very guilty about the persecution of the church. But nevertheless, he realized God, through the will of God, he was called to be an apostle of Jesus Christ. So there can only be 12 apostles. And what, we, what, what Luke is showing us at the end of chapter 1 is that Peter was hasty. And they chose Matthias, but God didn't choose Matthias. God chose Paul. And much of the book of Acts, and certainly Theophilus, this is all for Theophilus to understand, because he's the one that has to defend Paul. But, but much of the book of Acts is written for us to understand the legitimacy of Paul's apostleship, and how Paul is carrying out the acts that Jesus Christ carried out in the first volume of Luke. So we have begun the, the book of Acts, and uh, it's going to be a very, very interesting read. Uh, so we'll go through this line by line, week by week, and uh, we look forward to you continuing to join us and, and tell your friends about the study, and let's continue to study God's Word 
line by line. So with that, we'll end the study for today, and I look forward to continuing, God willing, with Acts chapter 2 next week. God bless.